we're going to Isaiah chapter 11 and we're going to read from verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people, to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not vex Ephraim. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, and with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river, and shall smite, and shall smite it in the seven streams, and make men go over dry shod. And there shall be an highway for the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word. 
Now we have already seen how beautifully the Lord Jesus Christ is presented and anticipated in Isaiah's prophecy. We cannot go but a few verses and a few chapters into this book without discovering some delightful, some very precious and, and rare pictures and types and names and titles of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the child born of a virgin. He is the son given to order, establish and rule the kingdom of God. And he is ordained with names and with titles that portray his offices, his qualities and his accomplishments. All of which Isaiah very strikingly describes as wonderful. All things about this Saviour, all things about this Lord are wonderful. Christ is king over his kingdom, governor to his people, father for his children, the maker of peace between God and man. And we've also noted how graciously and tenderly God has cared for his elect people amongst the Jews by supplying these revelations concerning Christ to a people who in this day and age in which Isaiah lived were being squeezed between evil rulers intent on unholy alliances with the powers of this world and God's own determination to punish and judge sin. So that God sends his prophet to condemn the guilty and the wicked, threatening them with judgment which most surely shall come, and yet in doing so he also instructs that same servant to carry with him a message of comfort and encouragement for those who must yet live through the trials ahead. These were people who God loved, people whom he desired to be kind and gracious and gentle with, people whom he was calling to endure through these times of trial, these times of persecution and these times of exile when it would appear that the whole nation was going to be destroyed and all the promises of God would be forfeited. God says, I've got something to keep you going through these difficult times. And I'm sure that there's a lesson for us here as well. In truth, if it were not for this weak flesh, we who trust the Lord, ought to be as comforted with the promises of his deliverance as much as with the evidence and the enjoyment of that deliverance. 
How often is it that the, the, the writers of the Gospels by the Holy Spirit use the present tenses in speaking about the Lord in anticipation of the things that are yet to happen. We are told that we are seated together in heavenly places with Christ. We are told that we are glorified together with Christ. These things are as certain as and sure as if they had already happened. And we, the people of God, ought to regard them with just as much delight and pleasure in anticipation as if we were verily experiencing them now. You see, the reality is that our faith is weak and fear stalks us like a lion. So that knowing our weaknesses, the Lord enlarges his goodness and his mercy to us. He increases the supplies of kindness to his people in the times of their trials and their persecutions and their problems and he doesn't take away those problems that exile had to happen because the judgment must take place there would be an accountability in this land there would be an accountability amongst the Jews and in Israel and yet the Lord nurtures his people they would go through the tough times but they would do so with the support and the comfort of the Lord's word via his servant, ringing in their ears and applied to their hearts. The Lord grants additional reassurances to those who mourn in Zion and to those who weep for the evil that surrounds them and indeed for the evil that indwells them. And he comforts his little ones with confirmations and promises and visitations of his goodness and his faithfulness. And that's what Isaiah is doing here in the, 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 the words of this prophecy that he has written down and delivered to the Lord's elect of his day. And I dare say that those who came after him, Isaiah lived a long life. They think he probably uh, uh, prophesied and ministered for over 60 years. He lived a long life and he ministered during that period of the Lord's goodness. And yet even when Isaiah died, his book continued to echo down through the ages for those who would be taken into captivity and who yet for for hundreds of years must anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the Lord blesses us in such ways also. Is it not a blessing that we're able to gather here today? Is it not a, a goodness of God that he has granted us the blessings of fellowship? That he has committed into our hands the word of God. That he has given us the opportunity of hearing the gospel preached. That he has revealed to us in the midst of a religious world that is largely blinded to the truth of God's sovereign grace and goodness. These precious manifestations of the Lord Jesus Christ's work amongst us. This is how the Lord assists us in the trials that we must face for it is through much persecution that we enter into our rest.
Now here, today, in this chapter, Isaiah provides seven. More well, he's probably got more than seven, but I've selected seven. Seven more names and roles and types and titles of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah that was to come. In order to comfort, in order to encourage, in order to build up the Lord's people of his day, in order, as it were, to put meat in the bones of the promises that had been given to the people of God for hundreds and hundreds of years. And as the Lord Jesus Christ's coming got closer, though it was still centuries away, more and more information was provided in order to assist and bless the people of God. And that's what we have here in this chapter. And I am sure that Isaiah's intention and the purpose of the Holy Spirit was that these Old Testament saints would think on these names that Isaiah was giving to the Lord. Think on the roles that he would perform. Think on the pictures that these titles conjured up in their minds as to who this one was who was coming and who they anticipated so eagerly. God planned and manifested and demonstrated his righteousness and his faithfulness to his people despite all the trouble that lay before them. God's purpose was to fix their hope on Christ and Christ lies at the heart of the revelation brought from the Holy Spirit by his faithful prophet Isaiah. So here are seven uh, names of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have set before us. The first one is a rod and that's in verse 1. The first metaphor or likeness that Isaiah provides for us is that the Messiah shall be a rod from the stem of Jesse. Now Jesse, as I'm sure you'll, you'll remember, was the father to King David. And yet it is notable that Isaiah speaks of Jesse and not David. He, he did not refer to Christ as being a rod from the stem of David that might have been uh, what we would have expected, but rather he is a rod from the stem of Jesse. It's as if Isaiah's intention is to distinguish the Messiah from David's glory and David's majesty. When the people thought about David, they thought about the glory of his kingdom. They thought about the things that had been lost. They thought about how good it would be to have that kingdom restored. But when they were presented with a view of Christ, it was a rod from the stem of Jesse that was uh, brought uh, to their mind and to their attention. Now certainly, Christ was son of David. It's one of his titles. But seeing him as a rod or a new shoot or from the stem or, or, or stump of Jesse points us rather to the meanness, to the poverty, 
to the relative obscurity of the Lord's humble background. Joseph, his, his, his father, as was thought, was a carpenter. He was a, a worker in wood. They would not be rich people. Mary was, was a lowly maiden. And while Christ was the king of glory, while Christ was equal with God, he humbled himself, took the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And cursed is everyone that hangeth upon the tree. And so this rod speaks of Christ's humble humanity. The people of Isaiah's day were being given a view of the coming Messiah, which wasn't all glorious and majestic, though it was in different ways, but yet also carried with it a strain, also carried with it a thread of humility and poverty and weakness, speaking of Christ's humanity. The next thing that Isaiah says is that the Messiah shall also be a branch. So he would be a rod from the stem or the, 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 the residue of the family of Jesse, as indeed he, he was. Um, but he would also be a branch. And this is not the first time that Isaiah has used this title to describe the Lord Jesus or the coming Messiah. And so by repetition, it is now being reinforced to us. Isaiah had previously told us in chapter 4 verse 2 that in that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious. I think it's amazing how that in a couple of dozen words, in a, in a single sentence, Isaiah has spoken of Christ's humility and his beauty and his glory. Oh, to be a preacher like Isaiah, who is able to put so much wonder into so few words. Actually, when we study the scriptures with reference to this branch, what we find is that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah all speak of Christ as the branch. And Zechariah, when he speaks of Christ as the branch, he capitalises all the letters of the words. Uh, as in Zechariah chapter 3 verse 8, highlighting once again the importance of this name concerning the coming Messiah. And again, it seems to be the intention of these writers to draw our view to Christ's humanity. His being from the earth, growing up from the earth, growing up even in relative obscurity, without fame, without fortune, pretty much incognito, so that for the whole of Christ's life, until he was 30 and, and commenced on his ministry, with the exception of that moment when he was 12 years of age in the temple, 
we know nothing of him. Thirty-three years the Lord lived. And all that we know of him, with few exceptions, are those three last years of his life. Where was the Lord before that? He was labouring as a carpenter in the city of Nazareth. And this obscurity, this meanness, this humiliation of the Lord of glory is a big part of what Isaiah and these other prophets are revealing to the people of God. We have to hold in mind that this one um, of, of whom Isaiah spoke and this one that the churches looked forward to throughout the, the, the centuries and millennia is one who grew amongst us, who came from amongst his brethren. And there's a link too with the city of Nazareth where Jesus lived. Nazareth, the name of the city, is from the word Netzer. And Matthew says that Christ was called a Nazarene. Well, that same word is the word from which branch comes. So this tree and branch theme is followed by the prophets speaking not only of one who would grow up out of the earth, but even in some way referred to the city in which he would live his life. Ezekiel calls the Lord a plant of renown. Yet Isaiah says he grew as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. So there wasn't anything uh, grand about, about him. He was a root out of a dry ground. It, it wasn't lush, it wasn't fertile, it wasn't fruitful in appearance. He had no form nor comeliness, no beauty that we should desire him. Here we have Christ as the rod and here we have Christ as the branch. Yet, Isaiah goes on and thirdly he says, this rod and branch... This insignificant and obscure man shall be anointed with the Spirit of God. So he is telling the men and women of his age aspects of the character and the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ that they might anticipate. And he is saying that he will be anointed with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. The divine person shall rest on him and equip him for the great work of redemption and deliverance and salvation that will fall to him. And this is an important consideration for us. It revealed to the Jews of Isaiah's day that it was spiritual qualities that would most characterise the Christ, the Messiah. And it's a nod, I'm sure, to Christ's spiritual kingdom. It hints at a grander reign, even than David's. And Isaiah says, 
the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the Spirit of the Lord most certainly did rest upon our Saviour. We see that graphically presented when the Holy Spirit descended as a dove and rested on Christ when he was baptised by John in the River Jordan. And we're told that the Holy Spirit was given to the Lord to fit him for his ministry. He was given without measure. So that not only did Isaiah call Christ the mighty God and the everlasting Father, but the Spirit of the Lord indwelt him continually. Isaiah is emphatically reinforcing the divinity of Christ, whom he had previously called Emmanuel in chapter 7 verse 14 and chapter 8 verse 8, God with us. So here we see these two aspects of Christ the rod from the stem, the stump of Jesse, Christ the branch growing up in a dry from a dry ground, and yet here is Christ with his divinity also in view, and the Spirit of the Lord resting upon him. In truth, the Apostle Paul tells the Colossians that the fullness of the divine nature in all of the perfections of deity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit are bestowed on this man, Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth. The rod and the branch possessed all eternity, all immensity and omnipresence and omnipotence, and omniscience, and immutability, and self-existence, and every other divine attribute of God in union with his human flesh and soul. For if any one perfection was wanting, then Paul could not have said that the fullness of the Godhead was in him. These are views that these Old Testament saints had of this Messiah that was to come. And thus we see the Lord Jesus as every gift of the Spirit and all the fullness of grace and love and divine goodness is in him. He is anointed with oil of gladness, with the Holy Ghost above his fellows. He has an immeasurable portion of the Holy Spirit's gifts, seven are quoted here in these verses, the seven spiritual endowments that are listed are wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord, discernment of men's spirits, which is the ability that Christ had to see into men's hearts, know where they stood and deal suitably with them be they proud legalists or humble sinners, as we see him doing throughout his ministry. He never broke a bruised reed. He never quenched smoking flax. He always treated most tenderly 
those that needed his help, and yet he declaimed against those who came to him proudly and with a hard heart. He discerned what the need and the nature was of the rich young ruler and of those who came to him, like that woman with the issue of blood. The Lord knew. Why? Because the Holy Spirit rested upon him. Isaiah says, fourthly, that the Lord Jesus Christ was the righteous judge. And he tells us that in verses 4 and 5. Isaiah is telling his audience how the Messiah, despite their fears to the contrary, concerning the destruction of the nation Israel and, and Judah, despite their fears to the contrary, Messiah will most certainly come and will do so with one purpose, to do his people good. Who are the poor? But the blessed poor in spirit. Who are the meek of which Isaiah speaks in these verses, but those of whom Christ blessedly speaks of in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. These are the very people that Isaiah is speaking about that the Lord Jesus Christ identifies as blessed. And in righteousness and in justice, Christ will go to war with the enemies of his people in order to bless the poor and in order to vindicate the meek. You, you, you out there today, the overwhelmed and the beaten down, the crowded out and the set aside, you, he will represent and he will defend. He will feed your hungry soul. And if the Lord calls a man or a woman or a boy or a girl blessed, then the world can call us what they like, whatever they like. If Christ accepts a sinner, it's because he has made the sinner righteous. He measures with a straight ruler. He weighs in a true balance. He inspects under perfect light. And he declares his people justified from all things. For by him all that believe are justified from all things from which they could not be justified by the law of Moses. Christ, we're told by Isaiah, wears righteousness and faithfulness like a girdle. Like men wear a chain of office or a sash of honour. These are characteristics of our Saviour. Righteousness and faithfulness to his people. And he dispenses these graces to his people as the most dramatic and extraordinarily, extraordinarily, extraordinary life-changing effects. That's what Isaiah goes on to talk about, about these animals living at peace and the children uh, with the snakes and, 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 and this peace reigning in the land. This isn't, some, this isn't something that's going to be a way far future. This is now. This is the, the, the fellowship of the Lord's church. This is the people of God living together. Enemies are reconciled. Opposites are united. Peace breaks out 
in the lives of Christ's people in that kingdom. And Saul of Tarsus was a, was a great example of this. The very man who sought to waste the church of Jesus Christ became its most ardent servant and loving pastor. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. How these Old Testament believers must have rejoiced to read Isaiah's prophecies, especially in the environment in which they lived, and trust what God would do. And yet there's more. Here's the fifth thing that Isaiah has to say. Christ will be like an ensign. He speaks about this in verse 10. The Messiah shall be an ensign of the people and an ensign for the nations. And what an amazing concept this is. An ensign is a flag or a banner and Christ would be the banner of truth under which the apostles would go forth in to all the world to preach the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ told the Samaritan woman, salvation is of the Jews. And so it was, for repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. For our Lord Jesus Christ is the flag, the ensign, which draws all nations to himself. Sometimes an ensign would be used in battle, sometimes it would be used for, for communication, for information, sometimes it would be used as a mark of joy and, and victory and accomplishments when it would be waved in order to celebrate. In all of these things, Christ finds a fulfillment. He's an ensign in battle. He rallies and he leads forth his people from captivity. He is the captain of our salvation. He's an ensign in victory, gathering his subjects together in order to celebrate, in order to feast and to reveal to the citizens of his kingdom all that he has accomplished as they rejoice in their salvation and their blessedness. He delivers, he redeems, he brings liberty. Christ is an ensign to the nations, calling his elect from afar and gathering them through the preaching of the gospel of sovereign grace. Christ, the ensign. And Isaiah goes on to say, number six, that Christ is an assembler. Let us, let us just pause and admire the beauty of the language of this prophet. This prophetic revelation from the lips of Isaiah and the pen of a ready writer. Like David before him, Isaiah's heart indicted a good matter as touching Christ the King. He says in chapter 11 verse 12, He shall set up an ensign for the nations 
and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. What a concept that is. 700 years before the coming of Christ. We're talking here about, we're talking here about the Bronze Age. We're talking about, about the Iron Age. We're talking about so long ago and Isaiah is sitting down and he is writing these words and he is speaking of Christ as an ensign and he is speaking of Christ as assembling the outcasts of Israel and bringing together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. It's amazing language. Solomon tells us that there is a time to cast away stones and there is a time to gather stones together. Well, says Isaiah, now is the time to gather stones together and the Lord shall gather his precious stones. He shall make up his jewels. He shall assemble them together in his kingdom as the crown of his glory. And perhaps Israel and Judah were the gospel's first fruits. But we all who are saved by grace through faith are the outcasts of Israel who are gathered and we are the dispersed of Judah brought nigh. The Lord Jesus Christ is the great assembler and he shall not lose one of those little ones for whom he died, nor will he bring in any who are not precious to him in that covenant of purpose. Those who are redeemed by his blood, the elect, shall be gathered from the four corners of the earth. Now the earth isn't flat, it's round and it's globular and yet the Bible speaks of the four corners of the earth from which the elect will be gathered. And these are the points on the map, north, south, east and west to which the gospel shall go and from which sinners like us will be called to new life, to everlasting life in Christ. And this leads us on to our seventh and our final likeness that Isaiah gives to us today. He says in verse 16 that Christ is a highway. Christ is a highway. Isaiah tells the believers of his day there shall be an highway for the remnant of his people. What a wonderful gospel message this is. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the way of life. The way of life spiritual, the way of life eternal. He is the highway of holiness. He is the path made straight in the desert. He is a highway for our God by which all who seek forgiveness from sin and peace with God are brought to know his salvation. Brothers and sisters, the way of life is narrow. The gate is straight, but it is a highway. It is a highway. It is a new and living way. It is the only way. It is God's way. Do you remember, we read it in Mark a few, uh, a few months ago, do you remember where, where 
the Lord Jesus encountered Bartimaeus. He was leaving he was leaving the city of Jericho, heading towards Jerusalem just a few days before he went to the cross. The blind man, we are told, sat by the highway side begging. And this is a great picture of grace. We are all blind in sin and crippled by nature. But we can beg for grace at the highway which is Christ. Jesus met Bartimaeus at the highway and he gave him sight. And the very next place that we hear of Bartimaeus is not at the wayside but on the highway itself. Mark writes, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. Isaiah picks up this theme a little later in his prophecy in chapter 35 and verse 8. He writes, An highway shall be there, and a way, and it shall be called a way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for those. The wayfaring men, though fools, shall not err therein. If Christ is the way, he is most certainly the highway. May the Lord Jesus Christ show us by what way we should go. May he lead us in a way of understanding and may he bring us on our way rejoicing. Amen.